What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cat Brooks. The San Francisco Police Department cracked down on a group of teenage skateboarders over the weekend, resulting in 113 arrests and dozens of young folks placed in zip ties and detained, um, often with many with their parents waiting in the cold for them. The actions of the police department have resulted in outrage and outcry from San Francisco elected community groups and community members. Here to discuss what happened are Joe Ravano Barris, senior editor at Mission Local. Good morning, Joe. Thanks for coming back on the show. Good morning. And we're also joined by Supervisor Dean Preston, member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors representing District 5, which includes the Tenderloin, the Hate, the Fillmore, Japantown Civic Center, and the Western Edition. Good morning, Supervisor Preston. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining. Joe, I want to start with you. First, tell my listeners, because apparently this is an annual event. What is the Hill Bomb? Yeah, I mean, this is a long-time event in the mission that draws skateboarders from across the Bay Area. And basically, you know, there's there's a span of two or three blocks right next to Dolores Park where skaters go very fast downhill. That's the thing. You're bombing a hill is what it's called, and you're just going really fast. Cyclists do it as well, but it's largely a skateboarder event, and it draws large crowds, most of them very young, teenagers, you know, 13, 18, I mean, some early 20s too, and then anyone who wants to skate as well. Um, but it is a predominantly teenage crowd. And it's been going on for years and years, um, and there have been incidents in the past. I mean, in, in 2020, a cyclist died when they collided with a skateboarder. In 2017, a police officer shoved a skateboarder into a squad car, resulting in a broken ankle and a, a 20. $275,000 settlement with the city. And then there's been fights and the stabbing last year. I mean, the incident can get rowdy. The event can get rowdy. Okay, so the incident can get rowdy. Supervisor Preston, the city knows the event is coming. Did the city do anything they prepared and perhaps make it a safer uh, event for folks that did not rely on extreme police presence and response? Do you know? Well, it, it, that uh, it's a good question. I mean, it, it, the event actually occurs not in my district, so I assume there were right. some conversations with the district supervisor uh, for that district. But I can tell you that there was certainly nothing that was any kind of citywide planning effort that that I was aware of. Uh, you know, we expected there'd be some uh, police presence, given as Joe points out. Uh, some history, you know, at this event, but nothing like what occurred. Um, and, you know, we what ended up happening was a huge show of force and a real escalation of uh, of the of conflict uh, by the police department that evening. Uh, what I found one thing I found interesting is, you know, usually as a supervisor in this uh, in this city, I get notified of um, what's called a situation report or some kind of incident report when there's a major uh, police deployment or something happening anywhere in the city. I received no such notice um, that evening. I was just hearing from folks who were out there and who were whose kids were being detained um, and who were just shocked by the the way that the police department was approaching it. First thing we heard from the police department officially was, you know, over 12 hours later by press release um, mm -hmm. with, you know, trying to explain 
uh, what they had done out there. So this is really, uh, you know, from my perspective, and it was an appalling um, escalation by the police department. Um, and, it, I, you know, we, we are, have demanded, I just wrote yesterday to the police commission uh, demanding they exercise their oversight function and, and really get to the bottom of what happened. Um, and uh, I expect uh, we're already hearing about uh, potential lawsuits and complaints to uh, Department of Police Accountability. Uh, people really should be outraged. And I've been a little surprised at how some uh, folks in leadership in San Francisco have just responded to this as if it isn't a big deal. Uh, we had over 80 kids uh, detained or arrested that night. Yeah, and we're going to get into one particular elected response in just a little bit. Uh, but, but Joe, let's take a step back. Uh, I don't want to assume that everybody is following these headlines. Walk us through, blow, 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 what happened. I believe it was Sunday night. Yeah, well, Saturday night um, and into Saturday, Sunday morning. Um, so I arrived on the scene around 8 p.m., which was after police had given dispersal orders for some of the skaters that were on Dolores Street. So from what I know from witnesses and uh, social media video, they closed down Dolores Street, which is the street where the hill bombing takes place. Um, they pushed skateboarders around the blocks in that area. But many of them ended up on an adjacent street, Church Street, which is even steeper, and started going downhill that that way um, and police went over there as well and it seems to be that in response to the police shutdown you know the skaters possibly to regain a little power of their own started tagging a muni car muni tram started tagging some buildings um, there were definitely glass bottles thrown at the officers and then fireworks set over the officers heads um, the police said in a statement that a sergeant quote suffered lacerations to the face it turns out that while doing an arrest, the sergeant was, was cut one time to the forehead, maybe a, a half-inch long cut, um, and the, the police union tweeted out photos of this, and we've included it in our coverage. Um, and that seems to have really prompted a, an almost tribal response from the police in terms of, okay, moving in, calling on lawful assemblies, and shutting the event down altogether. Um, and then in the hours after those initial dispersal orders, the skaters, the crowd scatter, the skaters kind of break up into different, some dozen strong crowds that are around those blocks. They're chased from block to block, and some of them are just stumbling into the situation, arriving late, because this is an all-night event. I mean, it goes on mm -hmm. until midnight. So some of them were just showing up at 8 or 9 p.m. Oh. when dispersal orders were given much earlier. And so then there, a particular group is caught between two lines of officers. And that's when the so-called kettling occurred, and that's when the mass arrest occurred. And I've spoken to a lot of parents and a lot of teenagers who say and confirmed with me with, you know, scooter kind of travel routes that their kids were just transitioning through the neighborhood, some walking home, just happened to be there at the wrong place at the wrong time. So not all the kids that were arrested and detained were actually even part of the event. Is that, I just want absolutely to not. That's absolutely not. I mean, it, you know, it's hard to know exactly what the breakdown was, but mm -hmm. A, uh, certainly there were some children, I mean, according to parents and according to the children themselves who were just walking home, um, some of them living on Dolores Street itself. So, you know, mm -hmm. walking home a block away, 
Uh, one mother I spoke to was on the phone with her child when he was encircled by the police and could see him, you know, and said, I'm, I'm literally here to pick him up. And then that he was on the wrong side of the police line. So he got caught there. And even, you know, and there certainly were a lot of skateboarders in that crowd. But even those, it's unclear that they heard the dispersal orders given earlier in the evening, or that even if they did, they were part of the vandalism and alleged assault that occurred. Because like I said, people are showing up at all hours of the night to this event and being shuffled around. I mean, it's a very confusing action. Right. I want to talk about what happened to the kids once they were detained. Joe, can you yeah, give us so, uh, some of the most egregious examples of things these children endured? Sure. They're, they're basically kept from before 9 p.m., sitting on the ground between, you know, dozens of officers, maybe 100 officers, and then they are slowly, one by one, zip-tied, hands behind their back, taken for mugshots on the street, and then loaded onto buses or vans to be driven. If you're over 18, downtown to the Hall of Justice. If you're under 18, just a, literally a block away to Mission Police Station. But that was an hours-long process in the cold. So I saw a lot of teenagers, you know, with tank tops on, showing their bellies because they were out here at 6, 6 p.m. when it was warmer, and suddenly it's 11 p.m. and they're freezing. Um, lots of Hungry teenagers, according to witnesses later, uh, thirsty teenagers, a lot of teenagers shuffling as if they needed to pee for hours and could not. One told me that a woman um, threw down a bucket, a woman living on that street threw down a bucket for them so that the boys could use it to, to relieve themselves. And one girl told me that several girls urinated on themselves while being held on the bus and had panic attacks and hyperventilated. Um, all during this, the parents are showing up in waves because they're getting calls that their children are being held, detained, and they're also waiting in the cold. I mean, I saw two parents with babies, you know, babies swaddled in blankets on their shoulder, waiting until 1, 2 a.m. Uh, in the cold, pacing around outside Mission Police Station. I can't, I can't, as a parent, even imagine. Um what my reaction would have been had that been my child. Supervisor Preston, it is my understanding that the actions of the San Francisco Police Department that night violated not only their crowd control policies, but aren't there specific policies that that govern or you know dictate how they're supposed to engage minors? There are specific policies in, in dealing with minors. This is something that our uh, public defender, Mano Raju, was uh, very vocal about um, questioning whether uh, these policies have been followed or not. It's something we have uh, urged the police commission uh, to to look into. It does not appear that these policies were uh, were followed. And I'll tell you this, if, if those are actually, if that if what the police did out there complies with policies and how we need we deal with our kids in San Francisco, then we need new policies. Uh, but I don't think that's case i mean i don't think uh there's 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 any way that's consistent uh with with san francisco uh policies and and i'll tell you you know as a not just as an elected official but you know as you noted cat as you know a parent i mean i have an 11 year old and a 14 year old you know two daughters i'd be absolutely horrified if they were treated uh in this way and i think it's important to remember that like the the statements that have been made that followed were not you know you don't hear from the 
the, the mayor, the police department, others saying, we regret this and this was an overreach, right? We hear a complete doubling down on this approach and an admission that the police were out there to break up this event, right? Uh, they were not you know, out there to make sure the evening went uh, safely to minimize harm, to be, we, we all know there are best practices for crowd control and they usually involve police sort of standing back and away from where people are gathering and just coming in as needed. And this was the opposite. I mean, they were here to break this up. They, they were out at an event they knew was overwhelmingly youth and they were out there ready, you know, in, in a hundred officers, in, in riot, you're pointing weapons at kids and the rest that uh, that Joe and Mission Local has really documented. And and I want to say, thank God Joe and Mission Local were out there because right. these kind of events tend to get rewritten the next day um, based on the footage of how people react when they're treated this way, right? So there was a lot of uh, press around the vandalizing of uh, a muni vehicle. And none of us want our you know, buses to be, to be vandalized. But it's important to note that was hours, hours after the police deployed in this way. Um, and so f- fortunately, uh, we had independent media that was actually out there at the event uh, reporting on this. So we're not just dependent on the uh, police version that we got the next day. Well, and to the property damage supervisor, Preston, I'll just say, right, like the muni bus isn't going to have lifelong trauma because it got spray painted. However, the children whose wrists and hands swole up because those zip ties were too tight, that were criminalized, that had to have their mug shots taken in public, this is gonna stay with them for the rest of their lives. Wondering if in, in the thinking about a city response, there's any thought about any trauma response or healing services for these young people to be provided? There should be. I don't think there has been that kind of outreach, but there absolutely should be. And I can tell you this as the supervisor that is the chair of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee. One of my functions is to actually review and approve uh, settlements when people sue the city. Um, And, you know, it's it's no question in my mind that we're ready that we will be seeing, you know, lawsuits over this and we will learn more about the damage inflicted on people. And as you say, it's like certain things go away the next day and, you know, and can be fixed the next day and other things um, are, have a lifelong impact. And I think for a lot of these, a lot of these kids who are out there may or may not have had any, you know, any interactions with, with police. And this is, uh, you know, quite an experience that, uh, you know, people talk all the time, police talk all the time about the and promote their community relations work and all and, and what they're doing to supposedly to improve relationships with with people uh, in the community. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it's just PR. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is some pretty bad PR because I, you know, I don't know how any of these kids are going to, uh, you know, not be traumatized by this kind of treatment. And uh, I think the city absolutely should be offering uh, that kind of support uh, to the folks who were uh, victimized and their families. Quick segue till we go back to the events of the evening. Supervisor Preston, you mentioned you're anticipating lawsuits. I think you are anticipating correctly. How much on average does San Francisco spend annually on settling lawsuits due to bad behavior on part of the SFPD? 
I, I'd have to get you that number. I, you know, I don't have an annual figure, but I mean, we've certainly approved, you know, settlements uh, involving police misconduct in the hundreds of thousands, as well as settlements in the millions. I can and, tell and you part of what number. Is, oh, go ahead, Joe, please do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Uh, so we did an investigation into just this civil settlements from law enforcement, so both SFPD and the sheriff dating back to 2010. And so since 2010, at least, the, the city has settled $70 million in lawsuits. And the, the biggest lawsuits, the multi-million dollar lawsuits, are for unlawful detainer, unlawful detainment, for unlawful imprisonment, rather. So years-long imprisonment that was later proven to be innocence. Um, but there are ser- several, like the supervisor said, of hundreds of thousands worth for things like this. And, and I think what's important here, and Supervisor Preston can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not money that's budgeted for in the city budget, right? That's additional money that ends up having to come out of the city budget after the fact. Is that right? That's right. I mean, it's general fund money. It's not yep. budgeted. Um, and, and I should say, you know, the, the possibility of lawsuits is not something uh, that I am uh, imagining or creating. I mean, we have had constituents who have told us their uh, kids were detained and who are telling us they are going off and have hired lawyers. So, uh, you know, I think that there's there's no question um, that that this will end up in court. But I also want to say that, you know, we all know that the legal process and civil litigation is a long process. Right. And I think it's really important that um, that all arms of government in San Francisco are not waiting for some civil lawsuit to figure out what happened here and get to the bottom of it and make whatever policy changes we need to make um, and hold folks accountable. Like that, that needs to happen yesterday. Right. Joe, this is just days after another violent police action. Can you walk us through what mm-hmm. happened on July 4th? Yeah. So on July 4th, Tuesday night, um, Basically, as soon as the clock turned midnight, um, as soon as July 4th was technically over, uh, SFPD, maybe, you know, another 100 officers or 70 officers or so, riot, you know, geared up in riot gear, uh, batons and beanbag rifles, and gave dispersal orders at a very popular intersection in the mission for fireworks. I mean, for years, 25th and Harrison has been the kind of ground zero for July 4th festivities and fireworks, sideshows, you know, things do get rowdy again. I mean, two guys took off their shirts and had an informal boxing match with boxing gloves, but it's very much under control. I mean, it's part of, it's an annual tradition in the mission. They came in and then they gave unlawful dispersal orders and they rushed the crowd and the crowd screamed and ran in all directions. And then for the next several hours, they kept doing this again, corner to corner, rushing the crowd, crowd screams goes away um no one was arrested as far as i know uh at least two people told me that they were injured with a baton swing and some a a woman was pushed to the ground by an officer and came to me crying um so and and leaders in the mission particularly kevin ortiz of the of the latinx democratic club has raised this concern of you know this is the second uh force forceful police dispersal in the mission in less than a week and there is a new police captain in the mission as of April, Captain Thomas Harvey. And they're going to have questions for Captain Thomas Harvey about why these decisions were made to break up the crowds in this way. What do we know about Captain Thomas Harvey? Is he new to SFPD or just new to this position? How long has he been with the force? 
Uh, I'm not sure exactly how long that we could get you that. Um, he's not new to SFPD, and he's actually been at Mission Station before at least twice, uh, once as an officer. And but he is new to this position um, as of April. Uh, I think he has a he has some family history in the mission. His father, I believe, was a realtor on Valencia Street that has a very kind of iconic realtor sign there in the neighborhood. Um, but I'm not sure exactly about his his history with the department. Supervisor Preston, wondering if you, I, I did, and I'm wondering if you are connecting this behavior by the cops to the law and order environment being pushed by Mayor Breed and DA Brooke Jenkins, which seem intent on criminalizing and targeting black and brown people and youth. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think there's no question that um, the police department is getting a very clear message from city hall from the from the top from the mayor uh to most supervisors and uh and certainly from the da um and a non-stop um uh corporate media cycle that is just is about you know quote unquote restoring order and and using uh you know ending the days of compassion basically or what they call compassion um you know, and moving in, in favor of much more uh, aggressive policing. So I, I think, you know, there is, uh, you know, we're seeing it at these uh, events, uh, July 4th, uh, the Dolores Street on Saturday with a huge show of force. Uh, we're seeing it in uh, with a, a revamping and and uh, uh, increased war on drugs and, and war on the poor in the Tenderloin neighborhood to the point of now, um, shifting strategies to actually arresting drug users, people addicted to drugs, uh, not just targeting uh, dealers. Um, and and we're seeing a really a complete lack of accountability when it comes to um, how we exercise our oversight functions and how we budget in San Francisco, right? And so I think it was really telling, you know, months ago when the police department and the mayor came forward with a $25 million uh, request of uh, the board of supervisors. Um, And it's like even asking questions about how they were going to use that uh, was viewed as like a radical act and gets spun uh, as if uh, anyone who questions police spending uh, doesn't support public safety. So that's kind of the climate that we're in. And that was that 25 million was rubber stamped. Uh, the current budget that's before the Board of Supervisors that the, that, uh, the mayor put forward and, and now the budget committee's adopted has over $60 million increases. We have a new MOU between the Police Officers Association and the mm-hmm. city that gives uh, $167 million in increases over the next few years to the police department. The highest paid so rookies in the country now. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're in a, a context where... Um, There's daily propaganda promoting more policing where any level of oversight or questioning of police expenditures is viewed as uh, a radical act as opposed to uh, city leaders doing their jobs. And the police get the message that they can, uh, at this point, uh, feel that they can do whatever they want and that they're not going to face any accountability when it comes to the budgeting process uh, or, or oversight. Now, that said, the police commission... Uh, has a majority of independently minded commissioners. 
Um, people are getting mobilized and pushing back um, and organizing. Um, and so I think in many ways uh, that the mayor, the DA, and the police are really overplaying their hand in this climate and are going too far. And I think when you start doing mass arrests of children, uh, that's uh, a pretty good indication you've gone too far. And and what about results? Uh, any any the promises of Jenkins and Breed that if they flooded the streets with law enforcement and did mass arrests of drug users, et cetera, that um, there there would be an end to to the so called blight and crime and drug use, et cetera. Um, even though violent crime in San Francisco is lower than most uh, any other American city in the country, any results? That have, that have come from really the launch of the War on Drugs 2.0 in San Francisco? Uh, no results in terms of improving anything, uh, which surprises absolutely no one who's paying attention, right? right. I mean, these are just <laughs> dusting off, just dusting off the same strategies that have failed for 50 years, um, you, giving them a new name, uh, you know, calling it a pilot or uh, claiming somehow it's not the war on drugs. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then getting getting some press coverage. I, I think what's important to understand from my my perspective, is what I've observed is like these are not stupid people. Right. London Breed, Brooke Jenkins, uh, you know, and, and the, the folks leading uh, the push for more policing in San Francisco and, and these sort of, quote unquote, law and order tactics. These are smart folks. And, and I think they they know the limits of what they're proposing. So, I, you know, what I've unfortunately come to really understand in, in San Francisco in this uh, in, in this uh, environment is that these things are not really designed to succeed. Right. These, these are not designed to solve city problems. They're they're designed to, I think, to do two things. One is to make the city inhospitable to folks who are uh, poor and folks who are uh, black and brown uh, and folks who are homeless. Uh, and the other thing is just to grab tomorrow's headline. And that's why we see so many of these things are just, they're just packaged for media, for uh, politicians, you know, career aspirations to get some good coverage the next day to look like they're addressing something and to address the frustration that a lot of residents feel. Um, but none of these are, these are not serious policy approaches to any public safety, uh, drug crisis, like the, the real things that are facing our city. And in fact, the, the, the struggle and the fight in San Francisco is that the very people you've mentioned are actually moving away from the things that would make us safer. Right? They, they're, the, the mayor promised safe consumption sites, for example, over those prevention right. sites and has reneged on that promise. Um, they, you know, the, the, the idea the, there are things that could make uh, us safer and solve our problems uh, and they're backing away from those commitments and substituting those with just uh, daily press releases about how tough they're being. All right, y'all. There's more that I wanted to get into you, but the tyranny of the clock. I've got to move on to my next segment. <laughs> I look forward to having you both back on the show soon. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. 
The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.